0: Welcome to The Other Coast, podcast out of Southern California. My name is Colgan, and with me today is Jeff. Hey, Colgan, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, how are you?
1: I am doing well, thank you.
0: All right, so I'm doing the introduction this episode because I'm in charge, because we no longer trust you with anything. So, it's a coup. <laughs> on that... <laughs> I can't imagine... Is it even a coup if it's only, like, two people? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I feel uh, right like that's too I'm,
0: grandiose of a word.
1: <laughs> right now, I'm reading uh, Stephen Kotkin's biography of Stalin. He he, I don't know if you're familiar, but he wrote a three-volume biography of Stalin, and I'm still just on volume one. But Stalin is uh, he's been kicked out of the theological seminary, and now he's he's uh starting to get really involved in radical politics. So I see a lot of parallels here.
0: <laughs> i know pretty much nothing about stalin other than his name and he killed a lot of people yeah I mean, a I, city named after him or it did
1: well yeah he did um yeah i i knew a little bit about him but obviously you know not a three volume biography worth um so yeah uh that's uh not really anything pertinent, I guess, except to your little putch.
0: <laughs> I guess you'll be ready if you ever decide to start your own communist regime.
1: <laughs> well, Stalin didn't start it so much as he uh co-opted it. So I I guess I need um I need my own Lenin to to start the ball rolling and then I can take <laughs> over.
0: <laughs> well, um okay, so I guess we can try and start on the subject. So bring it back to Malitho. Recently, you went to a tournament at Comic Quest, which is one of, it's what, like between here and San Diego, it's not quite San Diego, it's like Lake Forest or something like that?
1: Yeah, it's in Lake Forest. It's about an hour away or it took me a little over an hour to get there and then coming back was faster I, I don't know if it has to do with traffic flow or time of day or if i just got lucky on the way back or if out of anger i was driving faster uh, although i wasn't angry so you know that wouldn't really be it but yeah it took me about 40 minutes to get back so i wouldn't really call it local but definitely regional um i've been there before actually jim and i uh went although the store was at a different location then but jim and i went to an event there pre-pandemic um mm. well pandemic because jim uh hasn't lived in la for kind of a while but yeah jim and i went there once so this is actually the second event i've been to at comic quest
0: how's the new location
1: even though it was a different location the layout felt really familiar familiar and even the location like the the general uh area felt really similar. Like, I know it's different because I I very clearly remember, um, like, parking down the street and kind of walking up to the store when, you know, when I went the first time. And also, I know that just as a biographical fact of the store that they have moved since then. But somehow they moved to a very similar location to be in kind of a very similar strip mall. (laughs) So, yeah, I I had a bit of deja vu, even though I understood uh, from a factual standpoint that I had never been to this location before. They um <clears throat> they have a lot of product in not as you know, the the store's good size, but it's not, for instance, sure. as big as Lost Planet and it's also a comic store, like you know, you would expect for Comic Quest. So a large part of their their storefront is taken up um with comic books. Uh, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I I wanted to get a trade paperback of Longshot, because Longshot's my favorite superhero, Um, but they didn't have it in stock, so I'll have to find one somewhere else. But anyways, and then, you know, so they've got the pretty similar or or pretty familiar um, kind of space arrangement where they've got product, and then they have a gaming area, uh, and the gaming area, it's, you know, so again, at Lost Planet, we have those really large kind of six by four you know 40k style tables and there's like four of them right mm-hmm. um and Conquest, they have you know like those those plastic uh those those plastic tables right like you know picnic tables or whatever you call them and they've got Oh, yeah like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. i mean they've got like eight of them just in a room so it works really well for a game like malifo because you could you know you could put like just eight games or even more actually because you could really fit two games, you know, one by si- side by side on each of those tables. Uh, but for another game like 40k, I think it, it would become uh, much more difficult. So they do, uh, I think, a good job with the space that they have is is how I would put it. And uh, everyone at Comic Quest, you know, is, is friendly. Uh, it, it's a good environment. Uh, the employees were really helpful. So, you know, I'm I'm not willing to travel an hour to play Malifaux every week, but you know, I was, I was glad I made it out for the event. I did, in fact, you know, kind of mentally assign that time to the event, but I didn't actually commit to going until the night before. So that. uh... <laughs> you know, like, I could just decide not to and, and not be uh, bailing on anyone. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm glad I went, and I expect if I'm available next time, I probably will go to the next one, mm-hmm. whenever that
0: is. Well, it's good to know that the meta there is still alive and doing well, or at least well enough that they feel comfortable putting on tournaments.
1: So the meta seemed... Uh, e- you know, from an activity standpoint, maybe similar or maybe even a little bit uh more active than ours, but uh, other than the the term in organizer um octave, the guy who kind of runs Malifaux over in that area um, none of the people like none of the people uh from when Jim and I went were there again um
0: interesting okay
1: yeah so it seemed like they're you know kind of been ter- well of course you can't draw too much just from one event right but it seemed sure. you know, since a lot of the players at the event were also newer the impression i got was that the um you know the meta uh was was active in in the sense that the people who were in it were you know reasonably committed and and pretty regular so that they got uh good numbers but i don't you know, I I think the uh, like the makeup of the group has has changed, which isn't a surprise because again, you know, when Jim and I went there, it was like four or five years ago. So,
0: yeah, and I I guess like compared to our meta, a lot of people have flipped over as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, our, well, so th- I think the big difference I would say is that I think our you know from again from what I can tell, our meta includes more people in an absolute sense. But the likelihood that you will see each individual person um, is is very variable. And we have a lot of people who, who like, you know, they'll play like one or two games a quarter or something like that. Right. right. Um, whereas the impression I got over there was that a lot of their players were newer, but they were, you know, kind of like there every week sort of thing.
0: Okay, okay. So, so then with a lot of the newer players, are you seeing like more of the more recent crews that came out, or was it still just like a pretty widespread? Uh, there was a pretty
1: good spread of crews. Uh, someone did play Caster, um, uh, one, I believe, in fact. Uh, but you know, like people were playing Seamus, people were playing Parker. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so you have plenty of the playing like the OG Masters. I think the only Madness crew I did end up seeing uh, was someone playing Castor, and then that I, that wasn't even my game. So, uh, I yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they were playing the newer stuff necessarily.
0: Gotcha. So, so then, what was the turnout like overall? Like, how many people actually attended? Uh, so there were eight people. Okay, that's a solid number.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a, it's a it's an amount to where you feel like you're at an event.
2: <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> you know less than less than that um and it just it kind of it's especially if if there's no one from outside the area it can kind of just feel like a um uh like a regular game day with pretenses of uh of a higher station or something sure but yeah you, you know good good turnout i think everyone because uh i uh, They used long chanks, and everyone who registered showed up, which is always nice when, when that happens. By no means can be counted on, especially in gaming. Um, So yeah, you know, it's a good group. It was nice to, you know, get to reconnect with Octave, who we talk on Facebook every once in a while, mainly when we're trying to arrange our own events and convince the other to, you know, advertise for us. Um, (laughs) He's a nice guy. He, I, I, from what I can tell, he, he. he runs his group effectively, and I'm you know happy to go out and support him. Also, one of the players who had come to our last tournament, um Bing, he played uh, I, I think uh, Nakima exclusively. Um, at, at oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, in fact, you might have played him. I think on the Venice table. The yeah, I think board. I
0: played him in the last round. He was running dual masters, Nakima, and Lilith.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, Bing was there, so it was nice to be able to say hey, and also it's nice to be able to reciprocate, right? So. Uh, <laughs> People from from theirs came to our event, so you know we go to their event, and it just kind of helps if you can all support each other in that way. Uh, it, it's so. You know, I, I know at one point there was a Burbank meta, which for our listeners that outside the LA area, that might not mean that much. But basically, another area of Los Angeles, 45 minutes to an hour away from us up north. You know, there's enough players up north to support a meta, but for whatever reason, the meta hasn't survived, probably for, for lack of an organizer or maybe lack of a a game store willing to, you know, support with space and product or, or whatever. But I, you know, Los Angeles could support at least one other local meta. And it would be nice if there were these local metas, even if it cost us, you know, a player who maybe they're from that area and every once in a while they'll come down here because that's the only way you can get a game. If they had their own local one, maybe we wouldn't see them at all. But it would still be nice just to have another meta or two, which. L.A., one of the largest cities in the country, well, if not the world, should definitely be able to support more than two Malifaux metas. Um, so, I mean, that was part of my motivation. I wanted to make a point to both reciprocate Bing's appearance and also just generally support Malifaux play in the area.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, I remember we had one guy drive from, like, what oh, like, two, three hours away to come to our Santa Barbara, I think, which uh, I don't yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know exactly where that is but yeah that's a couple hours away and you know we've had Roger and and his um his group his nephew his wife uh, once his brother and they're from San Diego a good 3 hours right. away. So you know and, and and Roger's even just come for a casual game before. Uh so you know it's not that people don't make the trip um but it just it baffles me uh that LA can't support more Malifaux metas than it currently does.
0: Is it really just the two right now or that you know of?
1: Yeah, that I know of. Um there's been a couple of people who I know used to run a you know Burbank meta or Valley Meta. Mm-hmm. Um I actually went up um to the far north valley uh to play malifaux second edition uh mm-hmm. a couple of times when I because there wasn't really a M2E meta down here. So there were people active in the game but i i just i don't know what happened to them
0: yeah i guess at this point i don't i don't even know how you would find these people unless you just kind of like stumble upon a facebook group or something
1: yeah well i think discord has really become kind of a centralized area and there's you know the weird channel for instance um mm. which uh every once in a while i do get pinged like on the weird channel because someone will be like oh i'm I'm uh like in some random Southern California city, right? And someone else will be like, "Oh well, uh, Jeff's in Southern California. You guys could play together." And you know they're like two and a half hours away. Um, right. you know, but yeah, I, we've we've talked in the past about sort of the the issues that complicate gaming in in particular in uh, the Los Angeles area. But in my opinion, there's really no reason why they they can't have a a healthy Valley slash Burbank meta.
0: We'll see. Maybe this episode will spark that fire again.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see.
0: <sighs> All right. So I guess into like the nitty gritty of the tournament. So which did you actually like switch between different crews while you're playing? Or did you just stick with the one crew? Uh,
1: so I just stuck with the one crew, um, partially because it, it, I didn't know if there would be a um, uh, a painting requirement and <laughs> also on long you had to declare a faction now in the actual tournament format which uh i don't know if you want to go over that at some point but in the actual tournament format it didn't say that you had to declare a faction so even though long made me declare a faction i don't know if i would have been okay for me to swap to um to one of the few other crews that i have painted um but that wouldn't have been the same faction is what I declared on long shanks. So yeah. So I, I just played the Crossroads seven for all three rounds. It's always fun to get to play the Crossroads seven and in a tournament environment um, where I kind of, you know, there's an expectation, not of higher play necessarily, but that, uh, you know, the format is inherently competitive, which I know sounds silly to say because the, the entire game of Malifaux is, in theory, competitive, but there is, I think, a different expectation in terms of play um, for an event. So I felt better than like springing Crossroads Seven on, um, you know, like some some new player at the game store or something, right? So, sure, yeah, uh, you know, it, it is. It was nice to get the opportunity to
0: play them. Gotcha. Um, so since you mentioned it about the tournament format, so I'm looking at the info you sent me and it says three rounds at for two hours around. Um, and basically everything was allowed dual masters dead man's hand, except for Kaladi, which, you know, haters going to hate. <laughs> and they said a ride of models now allowed. So I assume, well, I guess by the point, by the time this tournament came out, like all of like the worst offenders <laughs> had kind of been pulled back a little bit. Right yeah so this is
1: except for the time which is different this is very similar to the format um of of the event we ran um mm-hmm. you know earlier in the year and I'm not saying that you know they they drew inspiration from that or even knew about it right but it's uh it clearly from the their um the the Provisio that now you can play the errata models right the madness models that have been errated. um sure. they were also aware of the various balance issues around the madness models um so I think that's really just what that was meant to emphasize that yes now you can um play Damien or play koji or whatever if you want to at, at, at their event
0: so for the like the two hour rounds that seems like you're running pretty fast did they were they also using chess clocks or was it just
1: yeah so they did use chess clocks. each player had fifty five minutes and they did the thing which again i I really don't like this and it it stuns me that anyone thinks this is fun, but they did the thing where um when your time is out, you just you can't act anymore um
0: uh, okay
1: so yeah, so each player fifty five minutes and the round was was two hours in total um from uh from what I can tell uh, you know, not one of the games that I was in, but um someone timed out uh or rather at the end of the round. I, I don't think one of the players timed out, but at the end of the round someone else had uh like a 15 minute lead over their opponent <laughs> which you know netted them two victory points because oh yeah that was another thing uh time difference translated into points uh one point for every ten minutes or whatever um okay but uh like the time for me, it it only ended up mattering in round two. Um, uh-huh. Otherwise, it it wasn't really a a concern. But I do think two hour rounds, um, very ambitious. And uh, this is something that came up at, at at the event. So I you know I don't want to belabor it or like if Octave is listening, be like, why is he still bringing this up? But um, y- you know, I I don't think that uh uh there was sufficient warning given to the players as as time elapsed because for for several rounds people were like surprised when time hit um Mm. it was understandable octave was playing he was he made up the eighth player so Mm. when you have to play you obviously can't spend as much time um watching the clock but you know the games really would have benefited from you know like 30 minutes left, uh, 10 minutes left, like, you know, that kind of thing. So maybe right. next time they can, uh, like, get a, get a monitor and, and put the clock up on that so, like, everyone can see the time remaining or something like that. Mm-hmm. but the the two-hour nature of it did concern me going in i kind of expected a lot of games to end around turn three or turn four and pretty much all of except for my round three my games did need the time so it's not like i i could like walk around and and see how many games were getting finished within the two hours but my impression was that most of the games ended up going to time
0: yeah i mean that makes sense Getting to five rounds in two hours. I mean, I I think it's possible, but I'm thinking especially with Crossroads 7, that might be a little difficult. So you mentioned two things. It's that they got points based on time left, and then they also got to take actions. So was it that if someone ran out of time and you hadn't hit the two-hour mark, they would basically just get a free move everything until the two-hour time limit hit, and then after that two-hour time limit hit, any remaining time they had would translate into points? Yes okay so then in that case i i mean i'm not sure how much it matters but if someone did time out and you had enough points where you could just win by one versus like taking actions and maybe not even scoring another point could you just opt out or would you be forced into taking actions
1: i mean you could just opt out right you could always just talk out a malifold game at any point anyways mm. so i i don't think it's different in that regard sure, um sure. but uh their first tie break was um a diff so you're very incentivized to score as much as you can
0: right right okay okay so i think i got a good idea of the general sense of things so let's talk about your specific games so for your first game um i see you provided the strategy so it was carve a path wedge fun and then the schemes were catch and release leave your mark vendetta public demonstration and secret meetup and Catch and release is the one where the crossroads seven just get destroyed, right? Because it's enemy henchmen.
1: Yeah, there's actually two issues with catch and release when you play the the CR seven. One is that it's basically free points for your opponent, and two, you literally uh, uh, cannot score um, uh, uh, the points for it because you don't have any minions. Um, and if you're taking the whole crew, right? I mean, you you can sure. play Crossroads and and hire in non Crossroads models or something, but you know, I, I don't do that noise.
0: <laughs> so it's a completely dead scheme. And... Yeah, it's
1: it's a completely dead scheme for for the full Crossroads lineup. Uh, it's dead for you, and it's just trivially easy for your opponent. Sure.
0: All right. So who did you end up facing off in your first game?
1: So my first game this is actually kind of interesting. I um I I I was I got the the event started 11:30 and I got there at 11 like 22 or something like that, right? So I I wasn't late. Um
2: mm-hmm.
1: but everyone else had already paired up except for uh, Octave, you know, the guy running the tournament who, you know, makes sense that he would um wait to make sure that uh you know that everyone else got a game, right? Um but when I got there, everyone else had actually already started. And and so, you know, we I don't know what time the tournament actually started or <laughs> you know, or if they had just run through all their setup at a certain time and, and were just kind of like rolling into the start of the game. But yeah, like I get there and I already felt like I was under the clock, even though I wasn't. And Octave mm-hmm. was not in any way like, dude, where were you, right? You know, because sure. again, I was there early, you know, I was there on time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, my, my opponent was... Uh, uh, Octave, uh, the the turn organizer. He was playing Colette. Um, he he had a uh, he had Carlos. He had Cassandra. He had two steameractnid uh, swarms, uh, and then he had a silent one with magical training. So you know, kind of fighty uh, for Colette, but with Cassandra and Carlos uh, and Colette herself, plenty of scheming power. Uh, he's got that seventh card on a very reliable, very safe model. The silent one. I had there was an interesting thing about the board where they have these large hills from um, Battlefield in a box like these these mesas or or like Plateau or, or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, I mentioned the brand because it's it's pretty common. So our listeners might be familiar with the piece I'm talking about. But basically they uh, they were treating the entire hill piece as just a height four hill with with no variation so there was no slope to it it was just like this is a height four hill and it was kind of placed where for wedge it was going to impact both deployment pretty significantly if if you if you choose the wedge basically there was a way of choosing deployment zones where the hills would be at or pretty near the apex of of each wedge and since I had the choice that is actually what I ended up doing because being able to um deploy to a hill like that could be kind of useful for some of my aura issues i mm-hmm. mean i'm going to lose a little bit of range because it is a height for a hill um but it it really does make it a bit easier to to have these over, these auras uh, able to see all of my people as long as they stay in in the right range sure but you know it is interesting when a hill is only a single height, because the hill rules as written kind of assume sort of a slope, right? Whereas mm-hmm. if you treat a hill as just a single height, you know, at, at that point, it's essentially just a building. And we've talked before about how the hill rules don't really work. And part of the issue of why the hill rules don't work as written is that the hills are written to where the height of the hill is x and x is derived from a model on a hill basically you know the distance between the model and the tabletop so the amount that the hill is elevated the model that is the height of the hill otherwise you know since since the hill height is referenced to a model if you don't have a model on a hill is the hill height anything does it does it block anything you know that's that's not really clear rules as written so I you know I think what they were really going for was a a kind of s- sort of simple um yeah this is a hill but we're essentially just going to kind of treat it as a building um so yeah you, you know it, it it did influence both of our deployments for me I was able to use it to extend my my auras or, or not extend but make it easier to to keep my people in the auras without blocking line of sight for my opponent um he had kind of uh you know he had said later that he had messed up his deployment which is hey that's i can i can sympathize um <laughs> but you know it, it it did seem like he had to spend quite a few actions doing sort of an unpack so uh-huh. uh yeah i i i think the hill sort of jammed him up a little bit which you know i'm, I'm glad to see <laughs>
0: All right, all right. So overall, I guess, how did the flow game go? Did it go more or less as you expected? Were there a lot of surprises? Was it like a big upset or how did it go? Uh,
1: so I ended up winning this game uh, 63 and we went all five turns. Uh, Chris, oh. Octave and I both are, are experienced and we both know our crews and mm. I happen to know Colette reasonably well. Sure. Um, so, you know, that definitely helped with the speed of play. I don't think he was particularly familiar with the Crossroads 7, but as he was an experienced player, it didn't take, you know, really too long for him to to catch on. But the, the basic flow of the game was that I was kind of able to, to have a fight happen within my bubble um, and the Steam Arachnid Swarms, because they don't have a good willpower, they ended up getting ordered around by Lust quite a bit. Mm uh-huh. hmm which, you know, normally you can't really assume that, but just being able to kind of teleport them around and give them distracted or whatever, that was pretty effective. I, uh, yeah, I didn't end up losing any of my models, and I I killed one Steam Arachnid Swarm and a bunch of doves and put some hurting on Colette. So it was a game that, for the most part, I was able to control reasonably comfortably. The, at the very start, uh, he had a Steam Arachnid Swarm attack, uh, Lust, who, uh, who hadn't activated yet at that point, and the Seamwrecked swarm had distracted. So he was attacking a triple neg, and he still hit me, and then, but it was a tie. So then on his damage flip, it's a, a, a double neg. Sorry, his attack was also a double neg. So his attack was a double neg, his damage flip was a double neg, and he red jokered the damage flip. And this was like pretty much the first opposed duel of, of the game. And, and I, for one thing, just like, you know, how we all have our own hangups, ups These, when, when statistically unlikely things happen, it's kind of a trigger point for me because I feel like if I create, like, advantageous situations for myself, I feel like I'm playing correctly. And then if I get, you know, if I just get a little bit unlucky, um, it, it feels like, somehow somehow like my effort isn't being validated or or something like that so (laughs) yeah this is just a thing about about my personality um but yeah that was like the at the very start that and and so i was i was first of all a little tilted by that um but also pretty concerned because you know after and, and i only stoned for like one of course when lux takes like net five damage or whatever, right at the, right at the, you know, the start of the fighting. Um, it, it definitely is not something that's going to make me feel very comfortable, uh, but ultimately wrath was able to um, like govern what was happening and then pride's aura and, and, and stuff like that. So uh, in, in the end, you know, his killing power came from the steam reactant swarms, but because of his, uh, his unpack issues, he wasn't ever able to get them both in the fight at the same time. So I was able to deal with one. And then when the other one came up, you know, again, it was kind of like the steam reactant swarm against all my guys. So I was able to deal with that as well. Uh, and then it was Carver path. So other than that, like he had Carlos pushing on one side, I agreed oh, wow. pushing on the other, you know, we were sort of just kind of pushing past each other uh, for schemes. He had Leave Your Mark, and um, I'm not sure what else he had. He did not have Catch and Release. Interesting. Yeah, which, again, I, I think is a, a symptom of, of not being super familiar with the Crossroad 7 crew. Mm-hmm. But also, he may not have had any model that could have declared it except for the the Silent One. Oh, can Steam Arachnids
0: not declare it? They're minions, well, they right? Are, or are they too they expensive?
1: They're minions, but yeah. Let me just look up Catch and Release real fast. Oh, no, it doesn't have to... His team Reactant Swarms could have... It, there's no cost component. So, mm. uh, yeah, and I, I think, again, that's mostly just a function of not having really been familiar with my crew. Right. And then I had... So I did not take Leave Your Mark because, uh, you know, Colette's got um, Ski Marker and Interact Tricks and stuff, and, and it looks like the, the obvious pick.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Instead, I took uh, Vendetta, uh, Envy versus Cassandra, because I know Cassandra has... Just, abysmal defenses yeah. especially against ranged like she has nothing against range except stone use and i took public demonstration and i like public demonstration with the crossroads seven because you can take two of your uh, crossroads models and then your totem so it, you know the math works out really well and and so yeah i was able to to score public demo i was able to score vendetta i was able to deny uh, leave your mark and yeah, I don't even remember what his, his other one was. It was obvious he had leave your mark because he just kept trying to um to get it done and Gluttony actually did a lot of work there to just keep clearing the markers and, and do damage to things. Again, that Steam Recknant Swarm willpower, it was so low that I was able to hit it very reliably. Um, right. And that, that basically governed the game. You know, we we um, I spent I scored a little bit more on strat than he did. Again, because of I think his his unpack issue. That's really what set him back. Sure. Uh, and then just being able to deny his schemes and, and score mine, and that was the game.
0: Yeah, trying to score, mm-hmm. leave your mark against gluttony sounds painful.
1: Yeah. So especially you know the first time it happens and you're not familiar, it's like oh wow that sucks, mm-hmm. but. After that, you have the big question of, okay, well, in order to score it, I have to drop these ski markers. If I drop the ski markers, I'm creating ammunition for Gluttony. So, you know, do I try to score it and, and hope that it works? Or, you know, do I do I think it's not really worth it? And ultimately, he made the decision um, to try to score it, which uh, just gave me a lot of ability to uh, push models around and, and do damage to them.
0: Yeah, it doesn't feel great when like you spend actions on like interact or dropping ski markers, then it just feels your opponent.
1: Yeah, especially if uh if there's such a reliable uh target for gluttony, you know, in this in the form of the steam arachnid swarm. Mm-hmm. Uh he would have been a lot better off, I think, if the steam arachnid swarms were interacting instead, because they have nimble. So if they were if they had if he'd used them to be his uh his curling guys and and push the the curling stone, um that would have been more effective of a strategy, I think. But that would have required understanding um a lot more about my crew than I think he did at the start of the game.
0: Yeah, which I, I think most people don't really have much practice against crossroads seven.
1: Yeah, and you know, even just reading the cards at the start, I don't think is going to give you that, that same knowledge base. So it's not, you know, I I don't know if you read my, my crew or not at the start, but even if he had, I wouldn't expect that alone to give him the, you know, the right strategy or, you know, the right course of play. So I think what he was doing made a lot of sense for the crew that he brought. It just so happened the in this particular situation it, it wasn't such a good idea.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like looking at Crossroads 7 4 match, like each model has like their own block of text, which is like largely the same but a little bit different. It's really hard to parse and like I guess comprehend right before a game.
1: Yeah, and this was actually a really good game for gluttony because uh the Silent One's Ice Pillars were also Oh shit, yeah. Yeah, so you know I, I killed a couple of doves by shoving them into ice pillars, which uh getting rid of two annoying things for, for one action, not not bad at all. So just in general, I think the things that he expected to be efficiency bonuses for him. So like the ice pillars being able to arc through and uh he you know, you get ski markers with Colette when you do presto change over or whatever, right? So there's some or or at the end of her action, Cassandra can push ski markers around. So He's got these things that are supposed to be efficiency bonuses for him that in this game uh, just worked against him, and largely it was because of Gluttony. Gluttony um, was really the MVP of my crew uh, in this particular game. I also do think that landing that huge hit on Lust when he did may have actually uh, like lured him into... Into maybe a more aggressive strategy than he might have followed otherwise, right? Um,
2: kind
1: of like, kind of like that game where I got the red Joker on on your Raspy with the Vix, yeah. And then I was like, well, I guess I'm going in, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> even though that might not have been the right move. I, 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 we didn't really get a ton of time to to talk out the game because you know the rounds are so short. You pretty much had to go as soon as the games ended. So I, I I can't speak with like certainty about his, his strategy, but I do think that, you know, one, his game plan works, but for, you you know, the specific answers I had, but also two I do think that he probably got this unexpected massive hit on my leader right out the gate pretty much. And that probably uh, just led to sort of a, I, I don't know, in chess you'd call like a forcing sequence or something, right? Just like a, A line of event that just naturally followed that that specific play.
0: Yeah, I I I can definitely see that. It is always really tempting, like when you land the first big hit, especially on turn one. It just feels like it's so little effort to like finish them off, and it'll be such a huge boost. Like, yeah, taking out the opponent's leader, but like top of turn two, that sounds great.
2: Yeah,
1: and actually, I had actually forgotten that the steamwacket swarms had nimble so hmm. um you know i had moved lust uh with gluttony you know, doing the kind of thing where i i have i drop a marker and then i push her towards it but it's been placed in such a way that it'll it'll always hit something before she can actually hit the marker
2: hmm.
1: that's one of the very few movement tricks the Crossroads seven have for their own <laughs> models um in fact that's uh other than the shadow effigy which if you don't declare lust, you don't have a shadow effigy the only one because lust does have some attacks that can move people but they're enemy only so yeah manning je is the only one so i did move up lust uh uh a little bit and it was wedge so she was in a vulnerable spot to someone with nimble and i just didn't you know i didn't have that in mind and even if i had I don't think you know, where she was at, I would have been too worried about one attack from a steam wrecked swarm while um, while she hadn't even activated yet. Mm -hmm. But it was just boom, you know, hit it, double neg, and uh, uh, red joker for damage. What
0: can you do? Yeah, yeah. Just the the die gods are against you. All (laughs) right, so I think I got a pretty good idea of what happened in game one. So... What about game two? So game two looks like you have covert operation, corner deployment, and then the schemes are in your face, catch and release again, assassinate, breakthrough, and spread them out.
1: Yeah. So this game uh, was pretty frustrating for me. uh, Although I had nothing to do with my opponent, my opponent, Gareth, nice guy, uh, new to Malifaux. He was like, this is, you know, his fifth game or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not brand new, but not, you know, he hasn't been playing for that long. still, pretty solid on, on all the rules was playing Seamus and, and knew the crew. So, you know, my expectation, but yeah. So Seamus is the anti-Crossroads seven master. He's got ruthless. He does eight damage on severe. Uh, he can teleport. And the board was like this uh, Western, Western themed town. So there were these four, Uh, huge buildings, and then lots of other blocking terrain. So Seamus, there was really no way for me to stop Seamus teleporting around. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But what made this game frustrating for me was that uh, I never took a a, a weak damage on any flip, and Seamus never did less than severe. And I say less than severe because he did the Red Joker on damage. (laughs) one. So Seamus was just nuking the hell out of my crew initially putting a lot of damage on envy so even though he was hitting envy for eight every time mm-hmm. uh through stone use and envy's armor two envy was actually surviving this just barely but you know seamus again he's got the he's got ruthless he has his ability to wear uh you know not only does he ignore friendly fire but he gives him pluses if if friendly fire would apply mm-hmm because of a red chapel model uh and then just that severe of eight no crossroads model has more than eight health and only one has eight uh envy so sheamus has a real one-shot potential and if my opponent i think had been a bit more experienced i think Mm. he would have done more focus and then shooting because uh he never really did a shot at focused where he, so that he'd be able to be at a straight flip, except once where, you know, he had kind of a focus because of the sort of turn one move and focus kind of, kind of dynamic that a lot of games sort of follow. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know, otherwise he was always doing damage at, at negs and still just landing severe's and red jokers every time Um <laughs> for the entire event. Actually, my jokers never helped me. Um, I got a lot of Black Jokers. I mean, not always significant Black Jokers, but a lot of Black Jokers of mine showed. And my Red Jokers never mattered. Like, you know, I would get it when I did my stupid... Um, my Shadow effigy puts up his aura or something, right? Like, i get right. a Red Joker there. Or, yeah. Um, so, you know, the Joker experience was not helpful for me for this event. I ended up losing this by one point. What ended up being super relevant were two things. For one thing, he... He one-shot Greed where he did severe on, on an egg and I didn't manage to survive um, with, with stones because I would need a moderate at that point. And I just got a weak so I died. And when Greed died she couldn't contest a strategy marker mm. that, that Noir was trying to score on and Benoit had already moved so Greed was denying until Seamus came over and, and, and just nuked her. And that ended up you know giving him the one point he needed to win. But also we hit round time and he ran out of time and I still had you know almost eight minutes left on my clock
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh this was you know there was no again just like in all the other rounds so I'm not saying that you know I specifically got screwed here but in in none of the rounds was there really a great time track overall like in round times so Mm -hmm. we actually other people were like, "Oh yeah, the round ended like five minutes ago, or whatever." We right? <laughs> so we we'd actually even gone past the round timer, but not knowing um, how much time was left uh, had a pretty big impact on me because I was, you know, trying to stall things out so that I could claim markers and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, you know, this was a, a game where I think if it had gone all five rounds, I feel like I was probably headed for for a draw. Um, I would have had to have been lucky to win, which I, you know, I definitely wasn't. And I do think that if it weren't for just Seamus getting severes every time, uh, that put just so much pressure on me. Um, you know, Envy spent almost the entire game slow <laughs> because, um, uh, you know, I, I, I kept having to to heal him with sloth. And then, you know, he he played a good game. I I don't want to make it sound like, you know, he was just going around with Sheamus and, and, and getting lucky, right? You know, the rest of his models we're doing a, a good job denying but i um you know frigid died in your face i managed to score it by killing lady sybil uh but lady sybil died really hard you know she kept she kept winning duels against me and and she kept uh stoning for Maud, or better and it was just like can you just please die good <laughs> you know, in the end uh she she did die so yeah, i, I it's not a game where Seamus was going around deleting my people. But I think if I were to play Gareth again, he would be better situated to achieve that. And, you know, the Crossroad Seven again, you just you should not declare the Crossroad Seven um into Seamus and probably into into Rezor's period since Seamus is just sitting there because since he ignores manipulative and that's pretty much all your people have. And even if he didn't have root this. He has other ways to ignore manipulative, and his gun is just, you know, brutal. So, yeah, this was a real uphill battle. You know, if we had kept playing, he probably would have been able to score, assassinate at least one point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was mostly the fact that Sheamus, you know, he spent the first two turns focusing on Envy, which... I think is a mistake because Envy is like the one person who's got a decent shot of uh, surviving Seamus' attacks with his armor Mm -hmm. two um, and then stone use. And next time I, you know, next time I would, I play, I expect he would focus, teleport, shoot, cheat in severe. Oh, there's one model dead, you know, (laughs) do the same thing. Someone else, there's another model dead. And there's really not much of an answer, especially on that board. Um, There wasn't a ton of concealment because it was covert operation. The crossroads can't bubble super well. So you sort of have to decide who's going to get that conceal aura. Mm -hmm. He did really want my shadow effigy, which I didn't. I mean, it's nice if you can remove a model, but wasn't ever worth points. I don't think it was worth sort of the actions he put into it to get um, to, to kill the shadow effigy, which he ended up doing, I think, on like turn three or something. But yeah, we didn't get through all, all five turns because so we hit round time. So we only got through, we were playing turn four and the round ended, you know, maybe halfway through turn four. So yeah, it was a, it was a game that was frustrating for me, not for any reason due to my opponent. Gareth was a nice guy. Um, it was, a, you know, it's a difficult situation for me to be in. And then, yeah, I was just getting brutalized by by Seamus's damage flips. Uh, and those two factors made it a uh, very challenging game, and uh, you know gave me my first and, as it would turn out, only loss uh, in in the uh, tournament.
0: Sure. Okay. So then, I, I know you mentioned uh, in your face, but what was your other scheme? Oh, um, so my other scheme
1: was assassinate, which I took not being happy with. But so here's the thing: catch and release, I can't do.
2: Yeah,
1: breakthrough because this is corner how the heck am I going to get to his deployment zone because I don't have mm. movement tricks um, and spread them out I don't have movement tricks and AP efficiency so even though I wasn't you know super thrilled about my ability to reliably put damage onto Seamus it was kind of like what the heck else could I could I declare fair fair Okay. He catch and release because uh, you know he knew that that would be effective against my crew and you know it certainly is especially uh for Seamus because you've got lures so you know it's even easier to get into uh engagement range than you know some other crews might might find it to be and then of course he had assassinate which here the clock did save me he wasn't able to score it because uh the round timer ended um before he could get around to doing it but it's just a super reliable scheme For Seamus onto lust,
0: (laughs) yeah. Well, I I feel like just for Seamus in general, it's usually pretty reliable that you always get the first point.
1: Oh yeah, well, especially you know if you're the enemy leader has seven health and manipulative, and you're ruthless. (laughs) Uh, And there wasn't so the board again, like I said, there was a lot of blocking terrain, but it was mostly in the form of uh, those those four large buildings. You know, there were there were a couple of crates out there, but not much. Um to the point where I don't think any of his shots were ever bothered with cover. So uh, was, I'm surprised was... he
0: doesn't ignore like cover and concealment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the reason he doesn't ignore those things, I think, is because his gun is just so brutal. But also he's got the um the Red Chapel killer to try to get around some of those things. So mm-hmm. instead of ignoring them, what he does is he tries to get his own models in melee and then he's actually attacking at a bonus. Um right. And yeah, actually my, you know, my effigies conceal aura was helpful to a certain extent because it it was giving me, um, conceal. Oh, that's another thing. So they, each of the boards had, uh, some concealing terrain, um, but no forest. So nothing was dense. So there was on, on none of the boards, um, was there a lot of terrain you could use to completely block line of sight, in the middle of boards. So like you know, the deployment zone, like the areas where you would expect the deployment zones to be, they had a fair amount of sort of line of sight blocking terrain. Mm. But it in most of the boards, and especially in this board, there was very little in terms of like safe approach lanes. Gotcha. So it's a good board for ranged crews. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there actually were that many ranged crews being played at the tournament.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like in general, I don't see a lot of ranged crews because uh, I know we have Chad playing Parker in our meta now, but outside of that, I'm not sure anyone plays like a primarily ranged crew.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think gun lines are super strong in Malifaux right now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is I mean, arguably a good thing because you, you know, just like people hate on Tau so much, somehow melee feels more interactive than shooting. Uh, but at our store, we play on a like terrain heavy boards um, and we you know, almost always have forest with dents and there just there wasn't any of that. Now, a couple of weeks before the tournament or a week before the tournament, um, I actually I played a test game with with Dev or Dylan in this pool because i knew this was the most difficult pool for the crossroads and so i wanted to kind of you know see what the unpack would look like um and we intentionally or i should say we because i set up the board i intentionally set out a a more terrain light board because i you know that's my expectation for most other metas um mm-hmm. and yeah you know th- that was definitely an issue you know not only the fact that uh pretty much there was very little in terms of uh line of sight blocking terrain but what there was Uh, was blocking terrain you know they were buildings they were things Seamus could teleport to so (laughs) it was very difficult to leave the deployment zone and be somewhere where Seamus couldn't get you uh Mm -hmm. pretty easily like in one secret passage action
2: sure Um, yeah that, that
0: that does sound like absolute terror to go off against
1: yeah and you know this was like the one game where in fact i had the worst luck like he did a good job of being cagey with the copycat killer but i got a clean shot or clean activation actually against him with envy and you know i missed and then when i hit i black joker the damage and it was it was just kind of a frustrating game from a from a deck standpoint Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: you know he he played a good game he you know, I, I think he earned the win. It was a one point difference. Like I said, I do think that if the game had gone to completion, I, I feel like I could have probably gotten a tie. Um, especially because, uh, you know, that Sheamus was was teleporting around and being annoying, but Madam Sybil was dead. He had lost uh, a couple of his minions. Um, you know, so it it wasn't like I was just getting wiped off the board, which I do think if I were to play against him, um, since he, you know, even though he was new, he, he had a pretty good grasp on the game. So I feel like if I played against him in this matchup again, he would be deleting my guys much more efficiently, uh, mm. in the future.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So then I guess that leaves us with the oh, third do and be like game. I should say
1: one thing about my luck, which actually was a characteristic throughout lusts, lascivious music. Um, she's got this bonus action where uh, she has an opponent reveal the top three cards of their deck. Lust gets to choose one for the opponent to draw and then the opponent has to discard a random different card from their hand. Mm-hmm. And I was on fire with those discards. Um, and I got a severe every time in every game that she did. it. I got the Red Joker against Gareth once. Oh James, James had done severe every time and he had done the Red Joker once. Um, again, just from the deck. And uh, And then when I got the Red Joker in in turn four, it was the last turn. I was like, you were going to get the Red Joker for damage again. He was like, yeah, I was. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that was one aspect where I I definitely was um, well above the curve.
0: All right. All right. So it wasn't all doom and gloom.
1: No, it wasn't all doom and gloom. And in fact, you know, mathematically, I'm sure I didn't really do much worse, if any worse than expectation, but that's not the way luck works, right? Different actions have different degrees of significance too, and so your know, right. shame is just always doing severe, you know, never at straight. You know it's not like he was cheating in these severe. it was just always at severe, it's just so much pressure to have to deal with
0: for sure, for sure, all right. So then I guess we can move on to game three, which you've already spoiled that you won. Um, But let's see. The strategy is cursed objects, standard deployment, and then schemes. We have hidden martyrs, sabotage, load them up, secret meetup, and spread them out. So how did this game go and who are you playing against?
1: So I was playing against Kenny. He's a a new player. This was, you know, maybe his third game, uh, which is not something I knew beforehand. Um, He was playing Mm -hmm. Parker. Uh, and and pretty much just kind of like a straight keyword type crew um mm. and uh this game only went to about mid turn 2 um before he he conceded and mm. it, you know not in any way um unpleasant but he was just like there's nothing i can do um which you know it it's true this is this is like one of those situations where it sucks to play the crossroad against new people, right? Because even though, you know, I tried to give a little explanation beforehand, I tried to give prompts or whatever, basically, you know, he just got slammed by things. And also because he was really unfamiliar with the, or really new with the game, he was unfamiliar unfamiliar with some of the basic rules. So, like uh, the difference between concealment and cover. So, I was able to nice. use conceal. You know, when I'm placing my guys in a concealment aura or behind concealing terrain, he, he, you know, especially in a in a um a tournament environment, I'm kind of assuming my opponent understands that. But he kind of, he felt or he thought rather that all of those effects were uh, cover. Um uh. So, you know, he didn't, like, why am I getting a negative to hit or something, right? You you know, and Mm -hmm. it really, it really impacted some of these positional decisions he made. The fact that he, you know, thought he was going to be able to do these things. Sure. And then, you know, Greed, he kind of clustered his crew up and Greed has unchecked Avarice where models just take damage based on how many um, other friends they have nearby, uh, mm. so you know, I I was able to nuke him pretty hard. And he had Barbaros, so Barbaros was splashing black blood onto his own oh, guys no. when they got hit. Yeah, I mean, it was just you know, it was not a good game in in like a like in the sense of if you were to evaluate like the quality of of the gameplay experience, right? Sure. Um, so you know i i felt bad because i'm not out to to gotcha anyone or to punish a new player and you know kenny wasn't uh again kenny was was really cool about it um he he just got to a point where he's like yeah you know there's there's nothing i can do you're gonna you're gonna table me and you're gonna scroll your points and it's like yeah you know that's what's gonna happen and he wasn't Mm -hmm. he wasn't rude about it or or you know mad or anything he gave me a cookie later, Uh yeah, you know, we were talking <laughs> about other games and stuff afterwards. Um, but so this, this is, uh, there's just not really m- much to say about it. This was essentially a, a, a gotcha game, even though it was intent, you know, entirely unintentional. Um, and so because of the concession, I ended up winning eight to zero, but I was going to win eight to zero anyways.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's no shame in conceding when it's like, all right, we, both see where this game is going and honestly if he's only played three games i think it's pretty good that he's able to recognize it as well
1: yeah so you know again this is not to like cast any aspersions but late in turn one i got a bit concerned because uh, you know how people like sometimes you feel like your opponent is sort of like resigned to what's happened like yeah okay yeah, okay, you know, you get like right. sort of a lot of those responses. Mm. Um, like after a couple of the rules things, and like, especially because you know, Octave was playing his own game, there wasn't a ton of opportunity to be like, hey, Judge, can you come over here and just sort of confirm that I'm not making this stuff up? <laughs> um, you know, which he didn't in any way accuse me of, right? But it's just, you know, because we're playing a tournament game, and I know the rules a lot better than he does because I've been playing a lot longer, it's kind of mm. like yeah, you know it's true that cover works that way, but this isn't cover. This is conceal. You, you right. know when you, it's just it's it's an uncomfortable position to have to be in when you are. You don't do anything wrong, but everything you're saying benefits you. Um, and yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. It's not accidental. You've engineered circumstances <laughs> that way, but it's still, you know, I, I I can see how it can be frustrating, and I do feel like he was kind of resigned. I I started to get the sense that he was resigned to the game. You know, before like a good fifteen minutes before the actual concession came, and it made me mm-hmm. feel. Um, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit uncomfortable, if I'm being honest, but also it made me feel just sort of bad that the experience turned out, you know, kind of negatively. Right. Um, Even though there's not really a ton of ways I could have, or either of us really could have avoided it, given what we knew going into the game. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like some of those situations happen, but, you know, they do. And especially, I think... (laughs) especially in tournaments you're going to run into that stuff especially as like a newer player going in like there's just gonna be times you're playing against someone yeah they've just been playing the game longer and they understand the rules better and like how to manipulate like situations to their benefit
1: yeah uh you know when you go into a tournament environment by you i i should say one right a a person you're going into a tournament environment i think you have to assume knowledge, a certain level of knowledge in all of your, to all of your opponents. Right. Um, But you know, the reality, especially for these local or regional events, um, you are going to have a lot of players who, who are newer to the game and it's good that newer players feel like they um, are welcome at these events because they, they are like, you know, all of these regional (laughs) events are desperate for people so Mm. in no way should we in ever be saying like you know you don't know enough to play a tournament (laughs) you know like it we would take people who it's their first game i mean i would really hope that um they would at least read the rules to get some context ahead of time but the reality is for these local regional tournaments you need everybody um at least in california you know maybe in like michigan or something um it's it's different i'm not saying that to slag off michigan just that the gaming environment in the midwest and back east is just so much healthier um than it is out west uh but, yeah, so, you know, I, I this was the one game where I, I, I felt a little bad, um, you know, for my opponent. And, you know, the play experience, you know, wasn't, I think, great for either of us. Um, sure. And also, because the first tiebreaker was Diff, when he conceded and I won 8-0, although, again, that didn't change the result. I would have, you know, would have been 8-0 anyways. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, I ended up being second. Um mm-hmm. ahead of Gareth who beat me, right? Like I went two and one. Gareth went two and one. Um Gareth actually got fourth. So someone else who was third um went two and one. Right. So I ended up in a higher position than someone who beat me. Um, which feels odd, right? And it's all because I well, I, I shouldn't say all because of this game, because I won my first game by three points. So my margin of my two victories were were reasonably healthy but an eight point margin that's that's warping in terms of uh uh, like you know diff tie breaks um and it's one of the reasons i really don't like diff it's also one of the reasons you know i talked about this actually a couple years ago when um uh you know i played the Crossroads seven in one of the vassal world series events and ollie beat me seven to one right and it's Mm -hmm. kind of like uh if you're in this tournament and you're trying to compete for the podium against someone like Ollie, who's also gonna be in that podium hunt, and Ollie got to play against a Crossroads 7 crew. You know, I, I, I'm not playing a meme list. I'm not trying to, you know, play a joke crew or something, but I have had a very serious impact on tournament results. And is that, you know, kind of fair to the community? Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, I, I ended up getting second, uh, at least in in part. Um, And I would venture to say in large part because I won this third game uh, with just, you know, the absolute most lopsided score that you can have.
0: Sure, sure. Well, and that's why people talk about strength of schedule. Though, I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, if you are someone who does like competing in tournaments, you're going to look at the trend over time, right? Not just any one off tournament for like, oh, this person's like the strongest there is
1: yeah yeah i mean i i think i just think for you know myself i was more than happy to accept the the prize they ended up giving store credit and so i i bought some paint which you know i probably won't ever use never um, going to use Oh, <laughs> well, maybe i'll you know i've got some buildings in the works so you know you can't say that that it won't get used but um uh it very
0: probably i can say wouldn't. they won't get used i'm going to say they won't get used
1: <laughs> but you know it, it was nice you know I'm i'm happy to get to get second you know i i feel like i played decently um Mm -hmm. and i had a good time i just feel like uh like honestly i mean i don't know what how um i i i don't think the scores ever got published so i i didn't see if i leapfrog leapfrog people um that i wouldn't have otherwise but i you know i wouldn't be surprised if an eight point diff um especially out of three rounds right so my first round i had a three points that's three point win that's very respectable my second round i only had a one point loss so again you know as good as you can get and lose um but then just tacking on eight points onto that diff it's it, it's warping and if you you know again this is a local regional tournament where everyone is Really friendly, and, and and you know, no one's bent out of shape about it, and everyone was happy for everyone else's success. But if you are in a more competitive environment, or you know, if this were the there were a million dollar prize pool or something, you know, like as the stakes increase, the significance of one system over another becomes more apparent. And I think it's the fact that the consequences are so low that makes it easy to be like yeah, you know, Diff is fine. But really, Diff is not fine.
2: Mm.
1: And I mean, yeah. I think... The realization well, they're using chess has, clocks. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, chess clocks have become, if not standard, very widely used, even though for a long time, people were very much against it. Um, and strength of schedule is now being used more frequently. Long has a strength of schedule setting. I don't know how it calculates strength of schedule, um, because my personal preference is to exclude the games, um, that your opponent played against you, so that you don't have a a systemic incentive to keep the score close for your, so that your opponent ends up with a better strength of schedule. Um, mm-hmm. but you know the very fact that they are using strength of schedule and the strength of schedule is getting talked about more is also positive. And look, in no sense can I in an ob- objectively say that I deserve credit for clocks and strength of schedule, but you know, I'm, I'm just going to leave here that I've been advocating for these things, there was opposition to them, they were tried, and now they're more popular. They, our listeners can draw the conclusions that they want to draw, but I'm just going to leave that chain of events out there. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure. We will we'll just ignore the other more popular podcasts that were also <laughs> pushing the same ideas.
1: Yes, but fortunately I have dated forum posts that go back years <laughs> complaining about this stuff. So uh, you know there's there's always a sure, written sure. record. It's like with Watson, right? When I was able to pull up that timestamp from like November saying, like, you gotta nerf this dude. Um yeah, Ooh, it's got to get done. It's um,
0: uh, yes, the most important currency in online discussions,
1: right? It, yeah, yeah. You, hey, you know, Batten <laughs> one thousand. Um, <laughs> thing is I you know I might kind of toot my own horn here, but at least on the forums, you know, I the people who just continually and I think reflexively oppose me and then end up, you, you know, being wrong. It's not like I rub their faces in it. They don't listen to this pod, so whatever.
0: I feel like <laughs> on your tombstone, you're just gonna have like hyperlinks to your forums for <laughs> forum IDs.
1: No, no, I mean, I, I am, and I am wrong a fair amount of times, and also, as I've said in the past, like because weird rulings are not always logically consistent. Being right is largely, I think a matter of coincidence. Um, and I am <laughs> happy uh, when the coincidence ends up lining up in my favor. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that, that was the, the event. And I just, you know, just to say um, that I, I, I do think this third game was a bit warping in terms of the results. So, you know, I am sorry to anyone that I may have. I mean, I can't, I don't really th- think you can say illegitimately, but, um, maybe unfairly, uh, leapt over, you know, I think they would have a fair complaint if they chose to make it. Which no one did. So, you know, that speaks to their maturity, uh, vis-a-vis mine.
0: (laughs) Uh, time to stir some shit for next time. (laughs) All right. So any like final concluding thoughts?
1: Uh, you know, a, a couple. So for one, um, You know, there was that time feedback, you know, was talked about a little bit on site and Octave was like, yeah, you know, I I should have done a better job of recording time. But I think what it really does illustrate um, on on sort of a wider scale is that these timing decisions are significant. And Mm. in our event, when we ended up um you know our event that we did with two and a half hour rounds i think two and a half hour rounds is a good round time um we gave people too much time on their clocks right like no one really in serious danger of, of timing out in the event that we did uh but in large part that was because we wanted to sort of habituate people to to clocks and, and stuff like that we weren't seriously trying to um use clocks in In the sense that I've often advocated they should be used in order to fairly allocate the resources. For this event, you know, one of the issues I have with this when one person times out, they just can't play anymore, kind of system, is that uh, you know, like take my second game, for instance. At at the time when my opponent timed out, I had seven minutes left, but there's no way I could use that because of the round time. Um Mm. so yeah, I did get one victory point out of that, but seven minutes of uncontested actions, I could do two turns in seven minutes of uncontested actions, especially if there aren't a lot of opposed duels. Um, Right. right? You know, I could have easily scored more than one point off that. And so, you know, it's just, it's another issue where, you know, is, is time running out, is the significance of that uh, reflecting the significance that you as an organizer want to ascribe to time and that's why i really do value death clocks because i feel time is a resource just like models just like cards just like any of the statistical resources that exist in the game and i feel death clocks are fair if you run out of time and, and, you know, assuming the format isn't straight 50-50, I don't believe in straight 50-50. I do think that each player should get a little bit more time than 50%, because I don't think you mm-hmm. punish the slower player. I think you punish slow players, or slow playing, to be more accurate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can very much make the calculus that, and I'm not saying Garrett did this, right? I don't think anyone at, at this tournament was motivated enough or you know had the disposition where they would do these things but just from the point of a system right because i think when you look at systems you should look at what are the behaviors they incentivize you you know what are the behaviors you want to incentivize and aside from the fact i think it's horrible like much worse than just losing to have to sit there and watch your opponent play a game um (laughs) What stuns me, I I, again, I'm amazed anyone thinks that's fun, but or you know, I'm sure they don't think it's fun, but it amazes me that they think that that's a better outcome than simply losing. Um, Mm -hmm. but also, you can probably make the assessment in a lot of these games that hey, it's worth it to use my time to run out, and because of the way the round time is going to interact with the clock times, my opponent might get to take a bunch of actions. Except they're not gonna have the time to do it. Um mm. and you know, you I think you can get in a situation where uh especially if points are or time's worth points, you know, time's not always worth points in all these systems. Um, but even if they are, right. like they like the system they used at, at this tournament, you very much can make the assessment that, hey, I'm better off just taking all of my time, leaving my opponent uh either hitting the round timer or virtually hitting the round timer and letting them redeem a point um, for, you know, for having a little bit more clock left.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's always going to be the case. If you give someone too much time, there's always going to be, I guess the possibility for them to just delay on their turn. And I guess, you know, that might be something that you have to enforce in some manner or another. I think in general though, most people will punish like intentional slow play. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and again, to be perfectly clear, did not in any way happen in 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 my game, and I don't think it's super right. common. Um, in but you know, there's there's slow play, but also you we know, one consequence of you you know a- a giving people time, right? Like mm-hmm. you know putting time on clocks, is that people do feel sort of justified to expend their resource, um. In a way that they see fit, right? Um, not you know slow playing in a dickish way, but it's a it, it's a resource that belongs to them. They're gonna expend it. They you know might be a bit more deliberative here because they can see they have time on the clock and that's their time, right? And so you know. M- There's no such thing as a free lunch. Every system has some advantages and has some drawbacks, just like, you know, not using clocks at all has some advantages and some drawbacks. And so you ultimately, whenever you're creating a system, I think you need to look at what are the advantages, what are the drawbacks, what are some of the behaviors that get incentivized, what are some of the behaviors that get punished, you know, and and what set of trade-offs do you like best? And for me, what this local, what this event did is it, Further entrenched my view that death clocks are the correct set of trade offs for me and, and like for the values that y- you know I sort of want to prioritize.
0: So you went to this tournament and it just further pushed your convictions that you're right.
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, two hour rounds, they you know the games went really fast. Um, They didn't feel particularly draining as Malfo games sometimes can Um, play was at a really fast pace uh, except for, you know, my, my second round game that was a bit lengthier. um, But you, you know, even then not a problem. So, you know, I, I felt, I felt good at the end of the day, you know, I didn't feel like drained or defeated or, you know, just like mentally dead. Um, It was a good event and it, uh, it. I mean, I wouldn't say that it makes me want to run a tournament immediately, but it, it it's good to go to these things in order to refresh your enthusiasm for the game. Um, and I left the event feeling more enthusiastic about Malifaux than having gone in. Right, so like it was a it was a net boost to my Malifaux enthusiasm. Hmm.
0: That's good. That's good. Yeah, I think having events like this or things to make, I guess games of Malfo, especially now that we're what like in the 3rd or 4th year of 3rd edition, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, and you know, I I do think it's it would be good if we had more frequent regional events. Um you know, like not necessarily all all being put on by by our group. Um, but I, I, I think the area, uh, support might be a, the wrong word because, um, I'm the only one who went over there from our group, uh, for our last event, Bing was the only one who made the trip over from their group. So, you know, there's not as much cross-pollinization as, um, I would like to see, really, um, but if we were at the point where there was a tournament somewhere in the area every quarter, um you know, I, I think that's a good goal to work towards.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think it's like one of those things that I mean, I guess it's kinda of hard to say, but if if you could have like a consistent thing that you could build hype around for like the stores and stuff like that. You know, even just like representing your store and getting like a little trophy or something like that, it might be enough to like, you know, pull a little more people from the sidelines. Um, It's really hard to say though.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you had more active metas within the region, you know, you do something like gym badges in Pokemon, right? Like, you know, you went over to Comic (laughs) Quest and you won their event and now you've got the Comic Quest badge, right? I mean, things like that, you know, they, they do help build, um, a friendly sense of rivalry. They build camaraderie within your own local meta. Um, You know, I, I have said a couple of times that I feel like our meta is just a bit too chummy, right? Like, I personally would like eight percent or ten percent more competitiveness um, out of our our local meta um just because you know it's great to play with fun people who aren't going to be dicks about it and everything yes i mean that's the number one priority have fun but if you can have fun and get challenged and learn more and grow more as a player and again i'm not talking about me personally i'm just saying as a play experience right um that to me, just seems even better, right? Have fun and grow. Um, and I really do think for our meta, we, we are very much on the people are fun to play against. And that's fantastic, right? I would not give that up for anything, but I would just like to add a pinch of, and people care a l- just a little bit more about the results.
0: Yeah, for everyone that's listened this far, thank you so much we're just one small meta in our little corner of the world you know we're always love to hear about other people's opinions if you have any opinions on this episode or any other things you'd like us to talk about in the future please let us know we have email we're on facebook we have a discord and also as always a big thank you to everyone that supports us on patreon and yeah i think that'll about do it so thank you all for listening